Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. In the lead up to the ACA conference this October, I thought we'd have a chat with one of our keynote speakers just to whet the appetite of what you might expect at the conference in Sydney in October. The theme for the ACA conference this year is the cervical spine. And the podcast today, we're going to be talking about how problems in this area may relate to dizziness. Joining me in this conversation is chiropractor and PhD, Dr. Carlo Ronaldo. Now, Carlo is a chiropractor, researcher, and educator. He's clinic, uh, the, the, oh, he's the director rather of his clinic at the Brain Hub, which is a multidisciplined clinic in Sydney focused on neurorehabilitation, including helping people with concussion and dizziness. Following on from completing his PhD in vestibular rehabilitation from the University of New South Wales, he is engaged in a post-doctorate research in neuromodulation and vestibular-based conditions. He is frequent speaker at conferences, as well as running his own professional education programs, both in Australia and overseas. Hi, Carlo. Welcome back to the ACA podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Great to be here. You were one of the first podcasts we did uh, way back in 2018, some some 90-odd podcasts ago. So uh, thank you so much for um, signing up and uh, joining with me again today. Any opportunity, Anthony. Tell us a little bit about your chiropractic journey so far and um, where things are at, you know, having done your PhD and with your neuro rehab stuff. Yeah, um, look, my journey started, uh, I graduated from Macquarie University in 2000. And uh, like many uh, new grads at that stage, uh, tried different techniques and different um, skill sets to improve patients. Um, I keep coming down to the same question, uh, how can we do better? And what sort of underpins a lot of these things that we see in practice with, with our success and failures? And uh, I guess neuro sort of landed on my lap at the time. Um, I, under, I started my neurodiplomate course in 2004 in Sydney, uh, completed it shortly thereafter, um, and really fell in love with, with neuro and, and how it sort of helps put together some of the, um, the pieces that I had and I think many other people have. Um, I was fortunate enough that I, I taught the course for a number of years, um, and I started developing a niche in vestibular conditions, and I just found that sort of worked well with me and what I was doing and and how that connect the vestibular system connected with the spine and a, a lot of the conditions that we see musculoskeletal based in practice. Um, from that, I, I guess I started to you know, work with other professionals, particularly medical, and I quickly realized that uh, being a chiropractor in a physiotherapy dominated world with, with, with vestibular therapy, I really needed up my game. Um, and really the best way was to go uh, head deep into a, a PhD. So I started in 2016 at uh, Neuroscience Research Australia, which is affiliated with UNSW. Uh, it was a great opportunity. Uh, it was a lab that was dedicated to biomedical engineers. So I was really the only 
clinician on on board. And I love that interplay between the, the boffins in the lab, the uh, the engineers, and the uh, and the patients. My study, my PhD, was a, an RCT on the effectiveness of a particular form of rehabilitation that we developed, and I was that um, that person in between the the lab and the patients, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I completed in two thousand and twenty one, so like, like early last year, I submitted. And uh, it was only a few months ago I actually got my um, my certificate, um, and that was a, a, a treat because I was the only non-engineer in the whole of the postgraduate cohort um, to have received a PhD or to receive any sort of postgraduate uh, certificate, um, and I was one of uh, only three who received a, a PhD in in that cohort. So I was pretty chuffed that a chiropractor. Um, stood on stage getting uh getting his degree well firstly congratulations it's a it's a, a great achievement and of course uh, supported by the aca along uh, along the way um so uh we're very proud to have uh, another phd amongst uh, amongst the many that we now have in australia yeah look big thanks to the uh, aca um who supported me through um through the journey with it with a scholarship and and just uh, supporting me through other endeavours, uh, including, um, you know, being part of their uh, committees, uh, which I've I've also enjoyed. So let's talk about cervicogenic dizziness. How, first of all, how common is this? Well, if you speak to a neurologist, they'll say never. Yeah. Um, mention the word dizziness to a neurologist, and immediately they they link a peripheral, which is basically an, an inner ear. Or a central, which is something like a migraine, or a, or a vascular episode, or some psychogenic. You know, they repeatedly I had have this discussion that they just don't believe that there's a a musculoskeletal cause for dizziness, and that also includes TMJ, surprisingly enough. So the 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 prevalence of dizziness as an entity itself is extraordinarily common. It's the number one reason why people over the age of 65 would see a healthcare professional or a medical professional. The prevalence of neck pain in the population is also very high. And uh, reportedly about 40% of people with neck pain have dizziness. So we can't exclude the relationship or at least the association between them. Um, by definition, it is, I think, still... Uh, if you look at the definition according to certain, certain categories, it is still a, a diagnosis of exclusion. So whilst I think most people now accept that there's a connection between the two, it's still in most instances shown to be, well, let's exclude anything else that may be causing the dizziness. And in the absence of that, and in the presence of neck pain or neck dysfunction, then let's call it cervicogenic dizziness. And because of that, it actually is quite a, it does have a very high uh, occurrence. So what's the actual mechanism by which the spine can cause dizziness? I guess the, the best theory going around at the moment, it has been for some, some time, is what they refer to as a, a sensory mismatch theory, where basically we have um, these centres in our brainstem, in particular the vestibular nuclei, that take in a lot of sensory information including our neck, our inner ears, our eyes, our cerebellum, um, our uh, autonomic centres. So it's a real convergent site 
that takes this information. And when there's an aberrant or faulty, let's just say faulty neck function, that information that feeds into this central area causes a mismatch between what it's receiving from the neck to what the eyes or the inner ear are experiencing. Mm. And then because of this mismatch, there is, some people just, you know, can deal with it and they've got a healthy enough system that, that the body can compensate. But for many others, particularly one that are of age or they have poor health, poor cerebellar health or poor function otherwise, that mismatch develops into the symptom of dizziness amongst others. That's not the only one, but it is a very common one that people people experience. So especially as you described there that um, cervicogenic dizziness is somewhat of a, a diagnosis of exclusion as primary healthcare practitioners, we have to be thinking about everything, not just the neck when someone uh, um, presents with dizziness. In fact, probably more importantly, we don't think about the neck in the first instance. What are the, the, the critical red flags um, that we need to be thinking about with the dizzy patient? I guess if we look at conditions that could be causing uh, a red flag, I mean, obviously vascular compromise would be the first one that we need to consider. And with a vascular compromise, um, often there are other neurological signs that are somewhat distant to what we would expect with the neck, and that includes other sensory or motor changes elsewhere, troubles with swallowing, chewing, um, speaking, um, are I guess some of the early signs to say that there is a vascular compromise. Um, there are some acute vestibular conditions that affect the inner ear and the brainstem and the cerebellum that also needs to be excluded. And there are different um, protocols that uh, have been set up predominantly in a, an emergency department setting that can triage a patient from someone who's having a fairly benign thing like BPPV or a cervicogenic dizziness something relatively benign, there's something more sinister. Um, and, and, and that protocol is what they call the HINTS, H-I-N-T-S protocol, that looks at the head impulse test, which is a vestibular ocular reflex test. They're looking at nystagmus, and, which is a particular direction of eye movement, um, and whether the head and the eyes have a particular pattern of movement uh, that is what you would expect or something that you wouldn't expect. So there's a little triaging step that people could use, and I do teach, and I will be presenting this at the, at the national conference as well, that we can quite quickly triage someone to say, okay, you know what, this is not something for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to now move, move you on to someone who should be looking after this. And, and that's not me either. That's, that's probably going to be the emergency department. Absolutely. So it, it, assuming we've gone through the process of uh, eliminating red flags, what are the key assessments um, from a sort of neuromusculoskeletal basis that we do with a, a dizzy patient? So I mean, very broadly, dizziness can be many things to many different people. And the first thing you really want to do is understand what they mean by dizziness. And uh, a a questionnaire or a series of questions can help understand whether it's something of cervicogenic nature, of a inner ear nature, of a vascular compromised nature, of a psychogenic nature, of a medication um, nature. There's, I often say to people that 95% of your diagnosis comes from your history. So mm. if you ask the right questions, you will get a great understanding on what 
uh, and where you should be spending your energies in further evaluating and confirming what you suspect. Um, but examination, well, based on the history, obviously, could include an audiological examination, even if it's just a screen. Um, obviously, the stibular testing that involve uh, the reflexes that connect the inner ear and the eyes, uh, ruling out things like BPVV, which are very common in practice, and I'm sure many chiros would see. There are central conditions, there are psychogenic issues, there are eye movement issues, there's autonomic problems that can relate to um, lightheadedness, um, where people arise quickly from a seated position, they get lightheaded, and immediately they say, well, I'm dizzy. Uh, and it could be just because of, of some autonomic issues. Meta um, metabolic conditions, systemic conditions need to be ruled out. Um, we need to look at balance and gait. Um, there are a number of cere cere cerebellar tests that we would also consider. Um, and, and I think even as simple as certain inventories or questionnaires can be a great indicator to start with or a great place to start to better understand what could be causing their, their problem. So unfortunately, I think there's no simple answer to that, uh, and nor should it be, to be fair, because dizziness is a very heterogeneous type of condition. And so it really is important for us as chiropractors to look past the cervical spine as the only contributor to dizziness. Mm. Um, and look, when it is a neck-related issue, we do a phenomenal job at helping people better than any, and the research is there to show that. But when it's a non-cervical um, spine problem, chiropractors do a relatively poor job at managing these patients because we try to do we try to fix the one problem with the um, with the with the one tool, which yeah. which doesn't serve us as a profession very well. No, you mentioned before about history being so important, and you alluded to questionnaires. Are there validated questionnaires that? you recommend both in terms of making a diagnosis and also, I guess, using as a, a patient outcome measure? Look, the most standardised one, one that we use in our research, is what they call the um, Dizziness Handicap Inventory. Um, the Dizziness Handicap Inventory looks at emotional, physical and uh, vestibular aspects of dizziness, and it, it can highlight whether... Someone has more of a psychogenic, more of a neurological or a, or a physical um, cause. And it's a good study. It is extraordinarily well validated. There's not a, a research paper out there that wouldn't use the, the DHI, the Disney's Handicap Inventory, as a, a benchmark. Um, there, are, there are subsets of that. There are different variations. But I think in practice, that's one. And it's one that you could, I'm sure there are online versions that you could send to people in advance, but it's one that I would be using. And, and I think also, you know, the people that we see in our office, we would do a, a, a general anxiety version, um, disability uh, questionnaire. There are other things that also give us an understanding of some of the drivers for their dizziness. And it's not always a physiological one. It, it also can be a polypharmacy, which is a medic, sort of a medication interaction. Mm. Um, and uh, and really concerns about anxiety and depression and hypervigilance as well. We'll make sure that uh, we make those um, uh, outcome measures. Uh, we'll include them rather in the uh, the notes for the podcast. So for those listening, just um, we'll make sure we send those links out to you. So that sounds great. 
Okay, so we've got the, the patient now. We've decided that this is a, a neuro rehab one. Maybe there is, in, let's, let's assume for, for this little uh, case study that we've got a, a cervicogenic mixed with other things. What, what are the typical sort of treatments that you use um, in, and, and what sort of things would be helpful for chiropractors to have in their toolkits to manage these sorts of patients? If we're looking at cervicogenic as being the, the cause in this instance, um, I know most of us, you know, go to straight to the spine and we do our static and motion palp or some other diagnostic test that relates to a particular technique that we we may use. But the evidence over the last five or ten years is pretty clear that we really need to bolster our our toolkit with assessments and treatments, uh, and they include things like. Um, the neuromotor test, things like the craniosflexion uh, rotation test, the craniosurvical flexion test. They're these tests that look at how we're activating and moving our neck, not purely statically or with motion power, but what's the engagement of muscles, how they've been coordinated. There are tests like the cervical uh, spine joint position error test, where we use lasers and charts. It's another great tool that we could use. There's things like the Fitzritzen test where we keep the head still and we rotate our torso, keeping the head still and to see if that provocates symptoms. There's this smooth pursuit neck torsion test. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that relate to the, neuro, the, the neurology that connects the uh, cervical spine with the brainstem and the vestibular system. And if you understand that connection, you understand the test that we could use in interpreting the results, then therapy is just an extension of that. It's just re-engineering those results from the assessment into therapy. And I've been teaching this for a number of years to chiropractors, and this is an area that people can add to their practice with little tools, really little expertise, and little time taken away from their normal care, which can certainly still include you know, our adjustments and all the other uh, musculoskeletal work that we do, but it just really brings us into the realms of where other professions are at the moment. And I think it's really important as a, as a, as a profession that we see what others are doing, we add what we currently do, which we know works, but I think, you know, enhance our results and I think our, um, and our credibility, which is, um, I think, you know, where we are at the moment is also important and brings into line where the evidence is. One of the things, obviously, um, that seems to be consistent with a dizzy patient is that hypervigilance. Um, the nervous system is particularly on edge. Um, and in the case, say, for example, with a cervicogenic uh, dizziness, do we need to, I guess, modulate um, the, the forces that we're putting into to the spine when we're thinking about adjusting these people? Yeah, look, it, it's an area that I think over the years through uh, errors, uh, missed opportunities. I think we, you know, been now 22 years in practice. I think I can say I've, I've had my fair share of patients that haven't responded well. And in almost all cases, Anthony, it's because I haven't identified that hypervigilance, that psychological, that fear avoidance, that sympathetic wind-up response. Um, so the better one can identify that and the traits listening to what they're saying, be careful of what we say as practitioners not to catastrophize something, mm. um, looking at autonomic markers of function that can indicate to us whether we should be doing an upper cervical spine adjustment or maybe doing something a bit more um, 
uh, caudal um, to the area is is something that I would say experience will tell you. Um, and it, when you learn some of these uh, techniques and protocols and understanding of neurology, you, you become aware of sometimes more less is better, um, and the the way in which you apply your your craft becomes modulated over time. Yeah, I've I've certainly had, and again, it's like you said, you used the word about the experience there, and I've got a few more years ahead of you that. Um, with these sorts of patients, absolutely less is more. And even if you know you're feeling that atlas and that just could do with a, you know, a good old-fashioned adjustment, um, sometimes going straight in there is not the right thing to do. And um, working on some breathing techniques or some of the other things that uh, obviously people will learn at the seminar um, uh, if they're coming to see you. So those lower-level entry stuff so that it's just that mild simulation in terms of getting patient confidence for, for starters, but also just that there's only so much that their nervous system will be able to adapt to. Um, and, you know, you can't you can't do just if, if all you've got is a hammer and you see every problem as a nail, um, you can't just whack everything. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and doing techniques that relate to breathing, as you say, and even rib adjustments, um, you know, using different filters to calm the nervous system down, whether it be with vagal nerve type of activities or cuddle lenses or, you know, uh, using listening to sounds and, and, and affirmation. I mean, there are so many things that we have as up our in our toolkit as chiropractors that should be added to your uh, armory of, of, a, of, of defense or attack when we're managing these patients. So in addition to the cervicogenic dizziness, which is one of the topics you'll be talking on at the um, at the conference, I noticed the other one is uh, the concussion whiplash link. Do you want to give us a quick little insight into what that's all about? Yeah, look, there's, uh, again, through experience and the literature shows the, the relationship between concussion and whiplash uh, is very, are very dependent upon each other. You could... I can't think of many times when you could have a head injury or a concussion without the neck being involved. Mm. So we see symptomatically and neurophysiologically, there's a lot of connections and a lot of similarities between the two. However, treatment um, and understanding and to discern the difference between the two does take some expertise, some, um, some technique, some observation skills and some knowledge. But I think it, it's really important, again, as chiropractors that when we when patients are coming into us with concussion, that no doubt we manage the cervical spine uh, and generally very cautiously as well, um, but that we do also look at other factors that that are involved um, with concussions. Uh, and again, these are the things that I'll be discussing in detail um, during my talk. Well, Carlo, uh, I think you've certainly uh, given us uh, some great insights there and and obviously a lot more detail to come at the conference. For those who are interested in attending, if you haven't registered already, just go to cairo.org.au to register. It will be a hybrid seminar. So there is, you can either be there face-to-face -face or also um, look at all the programs online. Carlo, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Anthony. I look forward to uh, hearing more of you uh, in October. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.